This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we've got a phenomenal episode. I'm super excited. We've got Murtaza Hyder back by popular demand, actually. You know what? Well, I feel like there's been uh, demand for Murtaza since he came on probably two years ago. About that, yeah. But he's a busy guy. Tough guy to get. Uh, but so glad to have Murtaza Hyder back on because this is a conversation that does not disappoint. He knows so much about like so everything. First of all, he, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I feel like Murtaza, like he's, so he, he, he knows a ton about real estate. He's an engineer. He is um, obviously thinking about the economy and the Canadian economy all the time. He's basically, you know, he's, he, he says he's not an economist in the episode, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to classify him as an economist, <laughs> whether he likes it or not. But he yeah, transportation he's expert. About. Yeah, he's he's a phenomenal guy. But he actually is a professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. He's also um, the director of a consulting firm called Regionomics Inc. And he's of course the co-author of the Hyder Moranis Bulletin um, in the Financial Post. Yeah, yeah. Wears many hats and can basically speak about anything. I feel like we should have him back and just have random questions that he sure. can he can explain. I remember explain actually to us and give smart yeah. uh, views on. Well, that's the thing, and he has a he has a way of explaining things in like the most simplest form, which is a skill set. I remember actually in uh, high school, uh, a teacher had asked me to explain, and this was actually an exercise, but uh, explain breathing to a Martian was the question. 
Oh, interesting. And I how'd that go? Yeah, I failed. Failed, <laughs> failed miserably. <laughs> the course, then the school. Then I got kicked out of school. Uh, no. <laughs> No, I, sure. it, not only did I not yeah. pass that, class, <laughs> it actually, it, I spiraled. <laughs> it ended my academic career. Uh, no, it was, uh, it, but he's the type of guy that could explain anything to anyone in, in, in very, very simple forms. You're really going to enjoy this conversation with Murtaza. Very, sure. very thoughtful, very thoughtful guy for sure. Uh, before we get to Murtaza Hyder, we got a couple things to take care of. Yes. Uh, one is the elephant in the room. Right. Uh, which is that Michael Jordan documentary on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the Last Dance. I can't believe it. And, and it must be, I mean, it's popular on Netflix. It's popular in our network of people. We've been talking about it a lot. We've never talked about it on the show. But it must be like everybody must be watching this. I, well, you said you walked by – well, two the, two funny things, right? A, yeah. a, a mutual friend of ours has now bought a basketball. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> like an out of shape like five-year-old five, guy. <laughs> and he's like incapable of being a point guard. Yeah. yeah. He's dribbling down in the in the, in the the park. But, uh, yeah. but you also walked by near your house, the courts. And yeah. not only was there uh, pickup games going on that usually are not happening, but yeah. they're also listening to 90s hip-hop. Well, no, this is the thing. So we were walking down – down down Union by the basketball courts, it was packed, like a standing room only. Uh, bunch of guys, some of them good, some of them not Clearly so good. not playing basketball yeah. all the time. Exactly. And uh, I was like, what? is that Mace? And, uh, <laughs> turns out turns out it was Big Pun. But uh, but anyways, <laughs> but uh, we were we were watching the basketball and there was some there were some guys that definitely played, but there was a lot of guys that just watched that Jordan documentary and now they're like is there still hope? But but no. it's, it's an, it's <laughs> no, it's an incredible documentary. It is. It, it is. It's funny. I'm not even a basketball fan, but this uh, this documentary. There's so many interesting parts. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's it's um it's it's also the way that they actually break it down uh, t- time wise. You know, they're 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 moving all over the place from the 80s to the late 90s and it's it's uh it's beautifully done. I've been telling everybody if you haven't watched it you got to watch it. It's phenomenal. Well, I mean Jordan cries. I didn't realize his dad got murdered. That's one thing. Oh, Maybe this spoiler is spoiler alert. Jeez. <laughs> Well, <laughs> happened well, in '94. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I actually, it's, it's, it's made me kind of long for the simplicity of the '90s in this kind of weird way because I've always thought of the '90s when as like suit a, pants were bigger. Well, Jordan's parachute suit, eh? Like that actually makes me think that Euro style might be going the way of the dodo bird. Like we're bringing back the big suits. I yeah. hope that's <laughs> post COVID. Post COVID suits. Yeah. I hope that's actually parachute the case. suits. Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't gain any weight. My suits. Just got bigger. Um, <laughs> but I mean, one thing you say simpler time, like we were talking about his his uh, uh, security detail. Right. And they're sitting in a room waiting for before a practice or before a game and they're all throwing a, a coin to see who can get it closer to the wall. Like right. it's like they're so competitive or he's so competitive. He's always in a competition. But that would be the, a game in, a ni- in that's the 90s. A, that's a game that – that's a pre-cell phone game. Yeah, that's something that you would do. Like, how do we kill a half hour here? Totally, totally. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's the thing eh, is you kind of a, a friend of mine said that uh, the other day he had said that it, it's crazy that he's got a young child and he's like, it's crazy that just with the way Netflix is and everything else, you'll like my kid will never know that feeling of like 
sprinting into the living room because you know that it's coming back on after a commercial. Yeah. You know, yeah, like, like you're going to miss part of the you're show. You're going to miss part of the show. And, and all these different things that we grew up in with that were commonplace. And that definitely made me long for, for uh, a simpler time for sure. I feel like if, if you haven't watched it yet, I feel like everybody's watching it, but, uh, but it definitely worth watching. Do yourself a favor. Kind of incredible. One of the, th- the last thing about it, but how he makes up <laughs> Welcome stories. Welcome back. How he makes up <laughs> the Jordan, Jordan podcast. But how he makes up stories, how he fires himself up during competition. It's like I don't even want to spoil that part, but it's yeah. it's incredible, uh, man. Talk about drive. Anyway, one other thing before we get going here, uh, well, two things actually. One is we are sponsored this week by Oakwin Realty. That is our brokerage, best brokerage in town. You know what they did for me this week? I don't know if you've no. received this uh, yet. Big surprise. Oakwin actually, without me knowing, did an audit on my social media, anywhere I am on the internet to make sure that I was compliant. Oh, yeah. That happened to me too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's incredible. I, I, yeah. That's incredible. This brokerage is it, – it, every, everything they do exceeds my expectations. It's crazy. Best in the game. If you're interested in learning more about Oakland, if you're a new agent, you're just getting your license, you're looking for a change if you've been in the, in the real estate business for a long time, oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. There's a big surprise. Huge surprise. A huge surprise uh, just to sit down and talk with these guys and you will not be disappointed. That, that That is for sure. And the other thing, Adam, is last week we talked uh, briefly about uh, the market coming up. And actually a lot of people have reached out uh, kind of thinking about listing sooner than later right. uh, with questions, right? Well, um, we, we're launching, so I think I, I've launched... We, we've launched now seven or eight listings, I think, in the last little bit here. And I think we've got a few, well, with a few more coming in the next week or so. Lots of people wanting to have a conversation about what their, the value of their home is worth. And I think, I think a lot of this stems from kind of that CMHC. And we talked, right. Murtaza's got a lot to say about uh, CMHC's projections that the Canadian real estate is, is dropping somewhere between 9 to 18% and how that changes your plans depending on what your goals are in the next couple of years. But a lot of people after last week's episode has re- have reached out and uh, we would encourage you to do the same. It's a For good sure. time to think about goals, potentially reevaluate, potentially not, but yeah. uh, but we're definitely around to talk. Well, we're busy and it depends what submarket you're in because you know it, at the end of the day, there are busy submarkets, pr- sub price bands, there are softer submarkets, subprice bands. So really just get in touch because you might be pleasantly surprised where the value and the demand is for your home in particular. And uh, Matt, yeah, we're, it's, been, it's been fairly busy, all things considered. It feels like uh, lots of movement in the market, at least the markets that we're working in. And, uh, well, you yeah. look at multifamily during May and the stats haven't come out yet, but uh, we're at mu- week over week, sales are, are increasing quite dramatically. So right. sun's out. We're positive as per usual. Oh, last thing, we're hiring. We're still hiring. Yeah, so we have filled the administrative uh, position um, with someone recently, and we're very excited about that. But we also have positions for licensed agents. That's right. If you're just getting your license, a new agent, looking to make a change, you want to talk about it, definitely get in touch with Adam and myself. Info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We're looking for a team member for Scalina Real Estate. Great place to work. No question about it. For sure. Uh, so get in touch and maybe we should cut to our talk with Professor Murtaza Hyder. You will not want to miss this conversation with Murtaza. This one is phenomenal. Enjoy. 
Okay, so we're here with Murtaza Hyder, professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson, also the director of consulting firm Regionomics Inc., and co-author of the Hyder Moranis Bulletin, um, featured in the Financial Post. How are you doing, Murtaza? Thank you for asking. Doing well, uh, given the circumstances. I hope you're, you're keeping safe as well. Yeah, and we should say you, uh, it was a while back, Murtaza, but uh, past guest, fan favorite. <laughs> <laughs> might have been close to two years ago, but it's good to have you back. And Murtaza, can you maybe start, uh, a lot of our listeners will know who you are, but um, can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yes, um, so I teach um, uh, analytics, data science, and real estate at the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. My research um, is uh, basically um, in two um, subject matters. One is real estate and the other one is transportation. And the way I try to understand all of this is through the lens of data and analytics. So we we asked you back, Murtaza, um, largely to, to get your uh, take on, on what's going on currently. I guess that's on the top of everyone's mind, COVID-19. We're now basically over two months into the COVID-19 shutdown. Is the state of the Canadian economy better or worse than you expected in, say, mid-March? Um, um, so the state of the economy is right now in, um, in a triage mode. Um, um, or, or not triage, but I would say in a, um, you know, what goes on in a in an emergency room of a hospital. Um, it it hasn't gone into long term care. Um, everything is happening very fast. Every day you realize, oh, we forgot to take care of this, or we forgot to take care of that. So the economy is basically in a stage where the governments are trying to ensure that there's not a significant decline in consumption, which means that people and firms, people and businesses stop buying, if they stop buying stuff, if they stop spending money, then that creates a very big problem. Then the real slowdown in the economy happens. At this moment, the slowdown is because of the restrictions we have imposed on ourselves. So it's not necessarily an economic slowdown. It is a slowdown that is derivative of the um, uh, movements and, and barriers that we have ourselves erected. That is preventing restaurants from hosting guests and uh, stadiums from uh, inviting people to watch games and so on and so forth. So the economy is in a freeze, not because of economic reasons, but because of healthcare reasons. So two months ago, um, did I expect the? Um, I, I didn't have much expectations, to be very honest with you. I, I, I'm, I'll be the first one to admit that I was um, clueless on the beginning or mid March when all these things happened. Clueless, not in the sense of what was going on, but but I had no idea how things will pan out. I had no idea how quickly um, this disease is going to spread. I also did not fully understand. Um, the the rate that it was spreading, the uh, mutations um, uh, globally, um, it was a lot of it. We were in in the middle of unknown unknowns. Not only that we didn't know a lot of things, but we were also ignorant about our ignorance. We did not know what we needed to know. 
And in the, those circumstances, um, provincial governments, municipal governments, and federal governments in Canada had to plan things. Um, so they were not informed any better than us. And and in in those circumstances, with limited information, um, um, with not much in the past to guide us. I mean, people think it's a SARS type virus, so we had good experience with it. We had no experience with this kind of challenge in the past. So in those circumstances, governments and businesses and everybody else have to figure out what they're going to do. I think uh, from a uh, from a positive point of view, what, what, what I think is positive is that I don't see uh, people on the street. I don't see hunger. I don't see um, people without shelter. And, and, and that was a possibility. Um, uh, if you look at the um, recent um, estimates from International Labor Organization, um, they're putting um, uh, 1.6 billion uh, people across the planet uh, to be whose livelihoods will be threatened. That's the, the phrase they use, that 1.6 billion people would have their livelihoods threatened. So under those circumstances, I think Canada is doing um, very good at the moment in the sense that uh, um, the governments together, not just the federal government or any particular provincial or municipal government, together they have been able to come to the rescue. At the end of the day, you know, it sounds odd, um, at the end of the day, the, the, the job of the government is to ensure that there's consistent flow of money, that there's no decline in spending, because a decline in spending is what a real recession looks like. So um, to answer, going back to the question you had, did I expect things much worse or better? Um, let me confess that um, uh, I had not, I had no grounds to have any expectations, good or bad, at this moment. I didn't have a benchmark. I didn't have these scenarios. In hindsight, 2020, I think many experts will come out and say, as we had forecasted. But I can tell you right now that not a single forecaster came out and said anything about it because they knew, they knew, they knew. They, so people who were wise and smart were aware of their ignorance. Those who were not in the same league were happily forecasting. Yeah, we're already strategizing about what we think are going to say we said back in February. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you mentioned what what a real recession uh, looks like, Murtaza. You know, you hear people throw around, you know, uh, haven't seen these numbers since the Great Depression, a deep recession, the V-shaped rebound, the L-shape. Uh, what do you think uh, – with all the caveats of the uh, uncertain times and crystal balls uh, not having them, what does the rest of this year look like, and maybe into twenty twenty one, and even even beyond? Well, thank you for asking me this. You know, I would rather ask an economist. I'm an engineer, but um, <laughs> but from an and I was and from an engineer's perspective, because we build things, right? So um, I, I think what, um, what what I'm looking at now is that what people have gotten. Uh, received in government support, um, may may that be two hundred fifty billion dollars plus um, uh, from can in Canada, and a, about a two plus trillion dollar support package in the United States. All that money is 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 not printed; it's borrowed money, right? This governments had to borrow. So, this is called the sovereign debt uh, money that the, the governments have to borrow. So. 
somebody has to pay that back, right? At the end of the day, like it's not that it's going to be forgiven. Uh, so um, going forward now, now that you know the initial shock has subsided a bit, and I can see people in some parts in Toronto and some parts of uh, Vancouver, uh, you know, the moment they see sun, they are brave enough to run out and put all the restrictions aside. Um, I think you know people are getting their feet back, um, their courage back, and they're getting back to on their feet. So, so with the, with this, I think. Um, um, the next six months will be about how to restart um, an, an engine, a large engine. Um, um, you know, it's it's like a, starting sometimes a snowblower. I mean, in, I'm using it in Vancouver this example, but let me say, tell you that in, in, <laughs> at the beginning of the winter, when you have got two feet of snow outside your house in Ontario or Quebec. Um, you really are not 100% sure that that snowblower is going to start again, right? Because it has been sitting there in in cold in the in the in the in the garage, and then you go with hope, prayer, and some ambition. You try to restart it. Most of the time, it does. Sometimes it doesn't, right? So that's just a snowblower. Now think of restarting an economy, right? Um, so if you think restarting a snowblower could be challenging at times, I can tell you. Um, re-engaging and restarting an economy um, has will have its own challenges. Um, so, how do you reopen? How, how do you how do you, and how do you phase this in while keeping your eye on the dashboard, um, telling you the rate at which new cases are being detected, um, so that you don't over overdo it and have a, a sudden spike in in pro, in, in um, affected individuals. So. So that is one challenge. How do you do this? Second challenge is the first thing that I mentioned, the sovereign debt. Um, the government has to start planning as to when they can ramp up the full economy so that money can start going back to governments and taxes. And they start thinking of, oh, okay, you know, how are you going to honor those those uh, those commitments? Um, at the end of the day, I think the lenders of the last resort, you know, institutions like IMF, would be able to help some governments um, because there is some some ability for them to do that. But I don't think this would be a concern for us in Canada, but it would be a concern for many countries in the global south. Murtaza, maybe shifting gears to the Canadian real estate market, has anything surprised you about how the market has responded to COVID-19? Um, yes, um, I was surprised at the extent of decline in sales. Um, I was expecting the sales to decline, but not by 70, 80, 90 percent. And I think the reason being people were very careful and concerned about the well-being of themselves and their children. So the first um, was the, uh, so a few things happened. Um, you know, people first uh, were not willing to list their homes for open houses. So open houses are gone. And and so buying and selling homes unseen becomes a challenge. Now, how do how so people some people asked me in an earlier interview a couple of months ago, do you think people will buy a house unseen? And I said, look, I come from South Asia where people have married spouses unseen, <laughs> <laughs> and we continue to do that through arranged marriages. We trust our parents, right? 
Um, uh, so, uh, so, it, it, so buying a house unseen doesn't seem that odd to me, at least. But, uh, but I can see how this could be concerned, right? So the thing is, it took some time for people to make that transition from actually buying a house by looking at uh, um, the videos and whatnot. And in fact, there was an amazing article by a journalist from Toronto Star just this week where she um, told the story of how she bought her first condominium in, in Toronto and how um, the buyer or someone else um, did a full WhatsApp uh, tour of the, the, the unit while she was somewhere else. And they, she said, you know, every, every closet space, every nook and cranny she saw opened everything remotely. So, so, um, so that transition took some time, and and as that transition was happening, people were afraid for two reasons: number one, that they couldn't see the property; number two, um, then um, everybody becomes an economist in times of crisis. So they started thinking that oh, prices are going to fall significantly. So why do I buy a house now for eight hundred thousand dollars? I'm just picking a number. Um, I can wait for two months, and I can buy it for six hundred thousand dollars. You know already. Uh, CMAC is forecasting eighteen up to a eighteen percent decline in prices. Right, this has gave a range nine nine percent to eighteen percent. So you know, like it's almost twenty percent. Let's say so. So people would say, well, if a twenty percent decline, I think that's like saving a lot. So why don't I just wait? So the sellers uh, applied breaks, and the uh, sorry, the buyers applied breaks, and the sellers started thinking, well, why, why should I list my home now? Things will re- will get back um, soon, maybe in su- in the fall or late summer. I'll list my house later. So both of these, the sellers disappeared and the buyers be- became um, suspicious of the prices, and that froze the market even further. So, um, so, so yes, was I expecting a decline? Everybody was expecting a decline, um, but was I? Am I surprised at the extent of how? Bigger decline in sales was absolutely. Um, um, I thought people would still be brave. People still have to move. Um, moving is something that you can. It's very hard to avoid it if you have to move. For example, if you've already sold your unit and your house in which you are, and you have to buy a new one, you've already sold the house that you you know you were in. So you have to move. You have to buy. If you have given notice to your um, landlord that you are moving out, and that notice was given four months ago. And now you have to move out, right? So, um, so I thought that some moves are unavoidable. Some may be discretionary and could be postponed or scheduled for later. So when I saw those declines, I was, um, you know, I think 60, 70% on average decline in Ontario, 80% decline in some other parts. That was a surprise. What did not surprise me uh, was the um, sort of a lack of uh, drop in prices. Prices did drop. A little, but if you look at the actually prices for um, homes that are identical in size and quality, those prices did not drop year over year. So April 2020 and April 2019 prices were not that different when you control for homes for the same size, quality, and location. So, uh, and why I wasn't surprised because prices are like wages. You know, when you say in recession or 20% of the workforce lost jobs, that is true. But you don't have a 20% decline in people's salaries. You know, those who are working do not get a humongous drop in there. So if there's a 70% drop in sales volume in housing market sales, you won't expect a 70% drop in, in prices. 
because prices are like wages and they are sticky. So that was not that much of a surprise. At the same time, I'm also mindful of the fact that if May, June, July, and August continue to be very slow for housing, then yes, declines in prices would become significantly larger. So, so you've actually already highlighted the uh, the CMHC projection that we we're going to ask you next here about the nine to eighteen percent uh, potential uh, drop uh, for the average home price across the country in the next twelve months. Do, do you think? Do you agree with with that projection, or do you think that that there's potential for for the CMHC to be right? So let me let me put it this way. Um, I know a lot of colleagues um, in at in CMHC. Um, who do, do this these kinds of research and projections. And I can tell you without a doubt in my mind that they are one of the best real estate economists in the world. These are brilliant people. So um, if they are saying it, then there must be merit for it. Now, I personally do not expect that steep of a decline in prices um, over the next 12 months. But then I would say that when you see my opinion different from CMHC, uh, you should also know that there's much bigger knowledge base. They know much more than I do. Um, so, so there must be things that they know that made them, um, that compel them to, to issue this um, large drop, uh, forecast for a large drop. I, on the other hand, given my own limited information and acknowledging the fact that what I know is much less than the kind of information that is available to colleagues at CMHC. I, on the other hand, believe that these things, um, the, the economy will pick up. And and the prices to decline, in order for the prices to decline by that much, um, you have uh, you have um, an abundance of listings. The people are, there are sellers available. You, know, you, you bring a product out and nobody's buying it. Then prices drop. Right? Because then sellers start to compete against each other for the fewer buyers available. But if buyers disappear, and before the buyers disappear, sellers disappear, then you have a freeze in the market. So the, 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 the market equilibrium sort of freezes until such point that buyers and sellers return. So it's the same as um, suddenly um, um, a stock exchange halts all trading. Let's say you know, the trading is happening in New York Stock Exchange. And there's some bad information coming in, uh, so bad that uh, there's been a significant decline. And then at some point, those who manage the exchange decide, nope, we're shutting it down. When you shut it down, um, the news is there, the bad news is there. The economic conditions don't change because the stock exchange has shut down. But losses stop because you can't sell or buy. So right now, we have that same analogy to an extent applies to housing markets, that if the sellers disappear and the and the buyers disappear, then you have the market conditions frozen until such time that the economy starts to come back. And I hope it comes back with a vengeance. Um, and then the buyers return and the sellers return. And the fear of missing out among, uh, amongst the buyers would mean that they start bidding quickly. So, you know, we waited last time and we missed the 2008 crisis. Let's not do that. There's a lot of kitchen table conversations happen, you know, because in every relationship, I'm assuming people are couples. So in every, there's a, we, couples don't marry very similar people. Like, you know, if the husband is risk prone, the wife ends up being risk averse. If the wife 
is risk prone the husband there's always this dichotomy of use so the kitchen table conversations become extremely exciting there you know one of the spouses <laughs> telling the other one things i told you because at the same time hindsight is always 2020 so i told you you missed that opportunity we should have bought that condo in florida in 2008 or we should have bought that thing in 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 vancouver island or what not you know people do have these conversations so the fear of missing out becomes a reality in people's minds and then uh, suddenly you know um, some optimistic columnist in financial post writes that things are going to be better maybe prices are going to rise faster and then you say look this guy's saying this he must know something so you ignore cmhc's warning which is based on lots of information and you go with someone who may not have the entire picture at the end of the day i think the the markets have to resume because the kind of credit or the buying kind of borrowing governments have done um, in the and to sustain these 2 trillion dollar handout in the US and 250 to 300 billion dollar support packages in on in Canada the governments have to put the economic engine back to work at at over over capacity why because without those tax revenues coming to them how would you be able to deal with the sovereign debt that has accumulated so 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 there will be a vested interest in getting the economy going and when the economy gets going people start getting confident they start buying and selling homes so um, so the question is do i expect the prices to fall by 18% in the next 12 months i don't but i have the greatest respect for people who think it could happen because i know they know much more than i do so, so kind of on the, along the same lines what do you make of of the timing of of uh those projections it strikes me as a, at a time when when there's a lot of uncertainty and it seems like at least people within the industry are are kind of wondering why CMHC seems to be hitting the panic button uh you know and and creating kind of a self-fulfilling or potentially a self-fulfilling uh prophecy there um what do you make of the timing so you know the, the I'm, i'm i'm an engineer but i'm envious of economists because economists 12 months later can say we are revising our forecasts <laughs> have you ever heard an engineer designing a bridge and then the bridge collapses and they say well we are design- revising our <laughs> so when an engineer revises her calculations or his calculations he ends up in prison so so the timing is is critical yes um uh, Okay, so what is going to happen now? See, um, if my memory serves me right, I remember uh, soon after 9-11, um, the um, uh, President George W. Bush spoke to the nation, and he encouraged people to say, don't be afraid, don't fall into despair, go out, have a dinner, go to a restaurant, watch a movie, go to a theater. And people thought, well, what? of your grieving and what kind of advice is this but that was the right advice and the advice was to ensure them the flow of flow of money through the through the economy because if people sit home start saving or not spending then the economic engine starts to collapse so right now the governments are in the same mode they have to incentivize businesses to hire and spend money to on R&D and new products and new ventures and the governments have to encourage people to go out and buy and sell and eat and watch movies whenever the movie theaters are open because at the end of the day you know Netflix 
I mean, it's it's great. I, I watch I've watched so much many movies in the last two months. Um, but then the fun of being in a theater, right? Like that, right. that that smell of popcorn. Regardless of how good your microwave popcorn is, it's never the same. It's never buttery, and it never makes your hand, uh, you know, soiled with butter coming from that popcorn. That entire feeling of going into a movie theater where someone else has dropped the 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 pop uh, before you so you, you <laughs> see that sticking to the ground that's real experience right that's the fun of movie going right but that's what the economy is going out spending money so when you ask CMAC when I look at CMAC trying to tell people um, uh, prices are going to go down and um, and um, instead of five percent you better put ten percent down as a down payment for first time home buyers. Um, uh, I don't know how much of this would help with the government's desire to incentivize people to spending and to be to participate um, in in the economy. Um, um, uh, again, it's I would never uh, be as bold or foolish uh, to be uh, critical of CMHC because, as I said, these there are smart people and they know a lot more. Um, and I'm hoping that over time we will learn what they knew, which we didn't. At times, the governments also have to to hold back information. You know, too much information or uh, it is is good, but not everybody could process it that much. So I'm pleading ignorance on it. Murtaza, in your opinion, which cities in Canada will outperform the Canadian real estate market? And and I guess the flip side of that, which cities will be hit the hardest? Ah, very interesting question. So, so the the idea of outperforming the Canadian housing market would be to say that your housing sales activity resumes faster, um, and that um, the appreciation in prices um, are uh, and the prices start to appreciate over time. Um, it's hard to say, but the, the, the bottom line is whichever parts of Canada, not the city, because it would be regional or provincial, whichever province is able to get the economic engine restarted sooner, um, will see um, the local real estate markets waking up faster from the slumber that they are in currently. So um, I, I see great challenges for Alberta. Um, I think we have uh, collectively done um, injustice to Alberta uh, and, and and the Albertan housing market is one victim of what has happened there because we have, we have prevented the province from um, exploiting the resources it has, resulting in massive uh, slowdown in the economy and, and, and that has a direct impact on all markets, including housing markets there. So um, I see challenges for Alberta continue to be as long as they are unable to exploit the resources that they have. Um, we, I see uh, challenges in the uh, parts of uh, maritime provinces where um, there may be a slowdown, uh, uh, but I'm not sure there. I think, um, uh, I, I, I think Ontario may lead uh, the recovery. Um, because I I don't expect I, I haven't seen much um, serious damages done to the economy. Um, so, uh, but the unknown unknowns are still there. Vancouver, 
um, you know, like when I when you want Vancouver to outperform, then you have a very sizable segment of the population in Vancouver. I don't know how big or small it is, but it's sizable that wants the housing market to to further weaken in 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 uh, in Vancouver because they think if housing prices are down, they'll be able to buy it. But I highly doubt it. They will never be. Um, uh, as people will not be able to buy housing because prices came down. Once your housing becomes unaffordable, um, if your financial circumstances don't change significantly, uh, a drop in prices will not enable you to trans- transition from rental to owner. Um, but um, but having a, an affordable rental market is critical uh, for uh, for a just and uh, economic, just and, and equitable society. Um, I don't think ownership is tied to it, but people having the right and the ability to have sufficient shelter, um, which means rental markets should be affordable uh, for all, not just for a few. So um, I think um, if rents uh, do um, moderate, um, in, um, that may not be a bad thing, to be very honest with you, because I see a very large segment of Canadians uh, across Canada and big cities, especially with the exclusion of Quebec. Montreal has very affordable rents uh, traditionally, but especially in Toronto and Vancouver and other parts of British Columbia. Um, um, a moderation of rents may not be a bad thing uh, for uh, ensuring that those who are essential to the uh, economy, workers who are essential to the economy, school teachers, uh, police, uh, fire, um, uh, people who work in the hospitality sector, people who work in the um, uh, restaurant sectors, they sh- must be and should be able to afford housing as rents, affordable rents, rather than sacrificing other spending. So so, um, so the question was, who's going to recover faster? Um, I think we should add to the definition of recovery, not just an increase in sales and increase uh, in prices, but we should also add to the definition of recovery um, an increase in at least rental affordability so that we can say that not only the city is affordable to me, but it is also affordable to my neighbors because that's where that's a city you would like to live in, that it's livable for you and your neighbors. Fair point. Yeah, good point. Uh, just a few more questions for you here, Murtaza. We know you're a very busy uh, guy. Just thinking about the biggest challenges moving forward, um, you know, when CMHC came out with uh, with those projections, there's there was talk about increasing uh, the minimum down payment from five percent to ten percent, and my understanding of that is that uh, there's there's a the perception or reality that Canadians are very indebted in a way that is is potentially unsustainable and, and dangerous. I, I'm curious on your take on on that, if that's the biggest challenge facing the, the Canadian economy moving forward, and what you think about raising the, the minimum down payment, and if it will happen, I guess. <laughs> well, the decision is with the, I think, with the finance minister. I don't know um, if anyone else can make that decision, but but here's the thing: um, Are Canadian is the domestic uh, ho- is the household that uh, in Canada high? Um, the answer is yes. Uh, but at the same time, um, a comparison with the United States would not be fair, primarily because um, um, a lot of what we do here is publicly provided, like uh, 
We have public education up to grade 12. We have public health, uh, publicly uh, financed healthcare, single-payer healthcare system. So um, the kind of economic shocks that people would experience in the United States if you lose job, you lose healthcare. Um, if you lose job and your kids were in private school, they're out of private school, right? So those kinds of shocks are not in were not prevalent in Canada, which means that um, um, people are sort of buffered um, by the by the social security nets that we have established. So um, so heavy debt levels um, are a concern, but not in the same way it would be a concern in the United States. Um, so that's number one. The second thing is, um, you know, if I were to tell you that, um, look, you're buying this asset and it may drop in value anywhere between 9 and 18% in the next 12 months, but instead of putting 5% of your money, I would like you to put 10% of your money. That's a puzzle I'm unable to understand um, because when the prices go down, um, it doesn't really matter if you have put in 5% down payment or 10% down payment. Um, your collective balance sheets are experiencing a loss. Right? And and if it's you put 10% down, then um, that's your equity. So that whatever the loss is in the or like, like decline in value, that's a decline in value in the equity you put in, in purchasing the house. If it's 10%, you're going to be taking a bigger loss. So that's one thing. The second thing is a few things happen when you raise barriers to purchasing homes. And um, so raising the barrier bar from uh, 5 to 10% means that uh, it doesn't mean that people who were able to save 5% would be able to save 10% the same amount of time. They would have to take longer to save that much because we have just, let's say, you know, 5%. Uh, if we 5% meant saving $20,000, and then five, 10% means saving $40,000 for the same house. So people would be saving for longer periods, which means that whatever the current status quo is, if they are renters, they will be renters for longer periods. If they are renters for a longer period, and that transition from rental to owner is delayed for a large number of first-time home buyers, then it would increase pressure in the rental space where um, rents would not moderate, even in the case of a pandemic, if the number of movers out of rental into ownership um, uh, is reduced. The second thing which I said earlier is that at this, in, this, in a case of a pandemic-induced recession, um, the, the goal is to circulate funds. The goal is to motivate people to go and, and spend money. But if you raise the bar from 5% to 10%, asking people to save $20,000 more, that $20,000 is not going to be spent in the economy today, tomorrow, next month, next week, because the household would say, well, I'm going to save this 20000 because I have to buy the house. I cannot buy it because the, the minimum down payment has been increased. So that $20,000 will not be circulating in the economy. So that would be against the intention of the governments to induce spending. So that would be actually um, uh, counteracting the policy. So, so, so these are the things. At the same time, you know, if you're if you're a city that is, uh, so if I if you're a house, if you're a person who cannot raise ten percent, and you say, well, this is it, twenty thousand dollars, that's all I can do. I don't have the ability. So they say, okay, well, if I cannot buy this house here, where can I buy something? And often, what where you can buy is something remote, like you know, it's not Vancouver proper. It's probably Surrey or beyond Surrey. So, so it forces people to move out. So, if you were, if you're a city or a region trying to fight urban sprawl, um, then um, 
barriers or bars raised for down payments would would have an impact, not a large or a small and unknown impact to be at least at this stage, forcing people to look for affordable units and that may push them towards lower units, smaller units, because they're cheaper or units that are farther away. So people may end up buying real estate that does not meet their um, shelter space needs, or they may end up buying units that have the shelter space that they need, but it's farther away. And they inadvertently, this raising the bar to from 5 to 10%, may have some contribution in inadvertent, like unexpected or unintended consequence of promoting some sprawl. You know, maybe just as a final question, Murtaza, uh, you mentioned that you're you're interested in the role of transportation. Obviously, at least here in Vancouver, and presumably, uh, well, everywhere, all cities with uh, infrastructure with public transportation, there's been a, a huge decrease in ridership and a huge challenge um, with with budgeting and things like that. Uh, at the same time, it seems like Paris and and Vancouver recently, at least, is talking about making some changes uh, as we come out of this. Where you know, moving away from single family, or sorry, uh, moving away from cars uh, dominating the roads and kind of being more aggressive there. How do you see the role of transportation kind of changing in the next next couple of years, kind of related to COVID? So I think the bigger challenge is what the uh, public transit systems are facing. They are facing drastic shortfalls, um, uh, and they the and the these uh, these shortfalls are also tied to the municipal budgets. Um, and so, for example, in Toronto, um, the Toronto Transit Commission um, uh, needs half a billion dollars because there's been an eighty to ninety percent decline in ridership. Go Transit, the, the the regional rail system, has a decline in 90% in ridership. So TTC alone needs half a billion, no, $500 million, not a small amount. The city of Toronto, which is the largest municipality in Canada with 2.7 million people, has a gap of $1.6 billion in its budget. Um, our neighboring municipality, Mississauga, has an 18% hole in its budget. So city of Toronto is 14%, Toronto and Mississauga is 18%. I think Vancouver's budget deficit is smaller, much smaller in percentage terms, um, but but there are humongous deficits. And then the pressure uh, finally to be able, to, because of the riders have gone away uh, and municipalities and transit authorities are still operating transit, even at reduced capacity or lower levels of service, they're incurring, incurring huge losses, so much so that the city of Edmonton raised the prospect of actually shutting down the entire transit in summer months until such time that the riders come back. And when the riders will return, you will still have these COVID-19-related restrictions. Um, I don't imagine the um, seeing um, crowded subway platforms in Toronto in the near future. I don't imagine being packed like sardines again in subways and streetcars uh, soon, maybe in the future, but not probably 2020. Which means that um, transit carrying capacity, the throughput capacity for public transit, because of the restrictions imposed to keep people safe and social distancing within transit vehicles and on transit infrastructure, that is bus stops, subway stops, platforms, staircases, whatnot, the throughput carrying capacity of these systems will decline significantly. 
which means that people will be looking for alternatives, and there are two alternatives left. One is car. I think there is going to be an uptake in automobile driving rather than a decline. Um, and the second will be telework, and, and we are releasing a report today on telework. We think that working from home is one preferred way for governments to consider working from home as a valid mode of transportation, because um, we have tried over the years uh, spending money. I think in, the, in 2016-17, the federal government announced $100 billion in infrastructure spending, of which the bulk up, I think $30 billion, was for public transit over a 10-year period, and about $10 billion was for road. That's $40 billion. And you can add another $40 billion from respective provincial governments, maybe another $10 billion from municipal governments, and you get a very large number. And when you spend all this money on building roads and transit systems, 10 years down the road, you interview me and you'll say, well, how come we are still congested, right? Um, there's a gentleman, a professor by the name Anthony Downs, who wrote a book earlier uh, titled Stuck in Traffic. And then 20 years later, he wrote a follow-up to the book saying, still stuck <laughs> in traffic, right? So, so I, I, I can tell you, you know, when we have this conversation uh, 10 years down the road, we'll be still stuck in traffic. The amount of, because the growing cities have uh, um, result in the increase in demand for mobility that outpaces the ability for us to build infrastructure that is needed to meet the demand that existed yesterday, let alone that exists today or will exist tomorrow. So that catch-up will never happen. It hasn't happened for any city in the world. Forget about us. We don't have that much transit, but New York does. So does Berlin and London and England and Paris. But they are congested cities as well, no better than us. Um, so you, so people will tell you, um, urban planners, that you cannot build your way out of congestion if you build more roads. Um, let me tell you, you cannot build your way out of crowding in transit even if you build more transit. Uh, they all help. They increase the throughput capacity for roads and transit, but congestion will always be there. But there's, I think one thing that governments should now seriously think is about telework. When you say, well, there, these are the modes of transportation, public transit, driving, and then within driving, we have this distinction between auto driver or drive alone and auto passenger carpooling. And then we have non-motorized modes, bike and walk. Well, let's add telework to it. Because right now, there's been a significant, dramatic increase in telework, which was around 12% of the people were working from home before COVID-19. And between in the end of March and early April, that number jumped to 40% of the people working from home. That could have dramatic impact on people's ability to work without being stuck in roads, in traffic, or, on, and, or packed like sardines and crowded platforms in public transit. So I think for transportation, um, in addition to public transit, I think one thing, if, if I have to advise governments, I'd say save public transit now, because without, if you don't save it now, because their losses are in billions of dollars, when the economy resumes and you're able to relax or, or suspend these COVID-19 restrictions, um, then transit should be there to allow people to, to, to work and go to work. 70 plus percent of the people who work in downtown Toronto, that's an employment hub of about 450,000 people. 70% of those who arrive to, for work in downtown Toronto arrive by public transit in the morning rush hours. Right? So you understand how critical it is for these employment hubs to function based on transit. But at the same time, if that's not going to happen, if our throughput capacities on public transit and roads is going to be compromised 
for a long period of time, then let's add telework to the mix because that will enable people to be equally productive, at least in the knowledge economy sectors of the, uh, of, of the economy, um, and, and be productive. There was a report done in Toronto, in Ontario, that said, rather complainingly said, that there are half a million empty bedrooms in Ontario, and we are overhoused. Actually, I think now with telework, I think those five mil, uh, half a million uh, or five million, I think it's five million, those five million bedrooms, that's the home office this economy needs to get us going through 2020. Valid form of transportation. I like that's an, that's an interesting interesting idea. So, so we're going to release a report. I'll, I'll share it with you. This, this report today will show that um, we have not really woken up to the reality that the advances in information and communication technology, the high-speed internet, um, the software as a service, cloud computing, big data, video conferencing, teleconferencing, these activities have helped us um, do remote work. Because how did people were able to get all these software houses shipped to India and China and other parts of the world? Because of this technology. So we have done amazingly well in working remotely, but then remote was not in suburb here. It was in India or China. But now we have to do it for a more localized fashion where maybe people don't have to go to work every day because, you know, a lot of what people do is go to work, sit in an office, open the laptop, connect to the enterprise database systems and start working. Well, why did you spend two hours getting to work to do the same, whereas you could have done the same from your own home? And I'm not suggesting that everybody loves this idea of staying home all the time, especially if you are listening to this podcast and you're in your uh, half a bedroom apartment and you know you would think this to be not a pleasant idea. But at the same time, for those who can work from home, those who have space, maybe we should you should take the opportunity to provide people the ability to work without having the need to commute physically because technology is not the barrier anymore. I think it's the only barrier is the lack of our imaginations. Right. Yeah, I like the commute from the living room to the second bedroom too. And But that's <laughs> that's bad news for podcasters, I think, because a lot of people listen to our show on, on their commute. But maybe we'll leave it there, Murtaza. But, but thank you so much for taking the time. And, and how can people find out more about your writing and, and what you're up to? So um, the best way to find out is to um, uh, find us um, Hader Moranis Bulletin. Um, you just type Hader Moranis Bulletin and it will take you to the Financial Post and National Post website where our columns are. Or um, we encourage you to visit urbananalyticsinstitute.com, which is our institute at Ryerson University. So urbananalyticsinstitute.com, where we release our largest studies, which one of which will be released soon on telework and its impact on housing and its impact. Because we are arguing that with telework, if you can work remotely, then you don't have to be competing for expensive housing in the expensive marketplaces. You can actually be a little farther away. So anyway, two places to look for us is Hader Moranis Bulletin on National Post and UrbanAnalyticsInstitute.com at Ryerson University. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much again, uh, Murtaza, for your time. That was, uh, that was at least gave me a lot to think about. I'm sure it will give all of our listeners a lot to think about as well. My pleasure. Great talking to you. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Professor Murtaza Haider. He's a professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. 
Yeah, Matt, and also he is the co-author of the Hyder Moranis Bulletin featured in the Financial Post. That's we one that we fans. watch. We, yeah. yeah, I mean, that, if you're looking for updates, uh, intelligent commentary on the Canadian economy and the real estate world, that is a place to to go apart from this podcast. Yeah, because they do they are all updating in the Financial Post on a consistent and regular basis for sure. And uh, Matt, I really enjoyed that conversation with Murtaza, and everyone will know why. In the intro, we said he does such a good job of of explaining things. Snowblower. Yeah, uh, snowblower. Yeah, movie theater made made me. I was I was uh, descriptive. He's so descriptive. Yeah, and uh, I almost started crying. There was there was moments <laughs> where there was moments uh, where yeah. It, it, this has been a uh, a very emotional uh, morning. Yeah, <laughs> lots of <laughs> lots of reminiscing. Um, what else do we got for the day? We've got a couple things. Uh, we, we'll mention one more time that we are. If you are an agent, if you are a licensed agent. Or if you are looking, maybe you're a seasoned agent, maybe you're somebody who's in the process of getting your real estate license, get in touch. We have positions for licensed agents to join our team and do that at info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. One other thing, Matt, that I wanted to get to, and this actually comes from uh, the conversation we just had with Murtaza, but a lot of people have been speculating that we are going to start to see activity in smaller towns, uh, resort towns, kind of lifestyle-driven areas. Like think of like Squamish. Now that people have the option, and it sounds like a lot of people are going to have the option to work from home more. Right, right. A couple days a week, even if you're commuting in one or two days as opposed to five, uh, Squamish is looking pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. So will we see, this is a question that we want to pose to the VREP community, but will we see a spike of interest in secondary markets or even lifestyle driven markets post COVID? Um, feel free to get in touch, send us an email or comment on our, our, our website. And you know what? I, more than commenting on our website, I feel like people comment on our website occasionally, but it's, uh, I feel like that's like a, a 10 year old way of doing things, right? Like yeah. our Instagram, we're, we're really getting bigger on our Instagram now. Uh, that's a place. That's yeah. a place. Head over Vancouver Real Estate Podcast on Instagram. It's, uh, it's, it's a, it's, we're posting more. We're, we're now, posting more. We were, we were neglecting it. Uh, we're posting a ton now. And, uh, if we're also posting some questions because we really like the big thing is we want ideas for show topics. We want to hear what you're seeing and feeling on the ground. Um, maybe you're buying, maybe you're thinking of selling. What are your concerns? Join us on Instagram. There's a conversation going on over there. Yeah, definitely join us on Instagram. You can also head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. That is our website where we have the live wire. That's our weekly mailer. We're posting stats before anyone else and stats that not everyone else is is seeing. That's for sure. So you'll want to sign up to the live wire over there. We also have our research tool, Private Client Services. And Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information at your fingertips. It's free. It's the best way to look for real estate in Vancouver. And it's available on our website, VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And if the CMHC is getting you spooked, get in touch anytime, 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or if you're not scared at all, try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And if you're super excited to not have to come into work anymore. Yeah, or just super terrified in general. You can get in touch with Secret at info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Trembling in a bunk bunker somewhere. <laughs> All right. Enjoy the sun, guys. We'll talk to you next week. Take care. Goodbye.
Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. <laughs> 